0: Construction D Construction D Construction D Construction Welcome to the pod I am here with uh one gentleman that everyone knows and loves. Uh he is the grandf the godfather of <laughs> grandfather. He's a <the> godfather of <laughs> of S D clown. i will say grandfather. Yeah. <laughs> he's a great grand, the godfather of S D clown, the godfather of improv S D podcasting. <laughs> um you know I'm loving Mr. Thomas Gallen. Oh, hey th- Tommy. Thank you for having me man. Yeah of course. I, I requested it. I've, I've been listening to your podcast since day one and I love it. Oh great. Yeah well, that means a lot. Yeah thanks a lot. Yeah I um, I started it just because you know I I like podcasts and I was a big listener of yours when when yours was around. I'm glad it's back. Oh thank you. Um, and um, yeah so I just wanted to um, I'm always interested in people's backstory. Uh, such a the rich histories that everyone has. So um, that's the point of this thing. Sure. But uh, so this is good because I, I know a little bit about you just from your pod, um, hearing bits and pieces of your of your life. Um, but we'll do a deeper dive. So here's what I know about you. You're from the East Coast, mm-hmm. New York. Brooklyn, yeah. Brooklyn, Brooklyn yeah. I yeah. feel like
1: I have to qualify that. What do you mean? New York is so big. Oh, yeah. And it's like like there's... There's such a difference between like, if you say New York and you mean like Rochester or if you mean Brooklyn, they're yeah. completely
0: worlds apart. I understand without understanding any of the detail because yeah. yeah, I'm not from there. I've never, I've only been to the Long Island once for work, mm-hmm. um, but I haven't like been anywhere else in New York and I keep wanting to go, you know, Brooklyn, Manhattan, et cetera. I should go. Um, so you're from New York. Okay. Um, I also know that you're married. You got, you got children. Mm-hmm. You were once an attorney. Yeah. And you stop that to run your own business? Yeah. I, well, the law firm, I
1: started my own law firm yeah. right out of law school. Yeah. So I, I've been self employed since 2003. And yeah. um, I sold that to do artistic work full time. Mm-hmm. So, like, uh, teach improv, perform improv, perform comedy, um, and that. And then I wound up. Uh, running a a corporate improv program at a theater in New York for a while.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I'm, I'm so interested in like, that's a huge move to leave. um, What is a promising secure ish career, Mm -hmm. um, possibly lucrative, um, (laughs) possibly not, um, you know, to kind of pursue something different, um, that's, and then, you know, something like teaching improv or teaching clown is, I mean, I'm, I i do not know if there's a lot of precedent or like, y- you have no idea if it's going to work out or not financially. Yeah. Um, so that's okay. So I, I don't know where I want to start. <laughs> I'll start. So what year were you born? 77. 77 in New York. Yep. And then you're one of how many? Oh, it depends. Uh, I was born to, uh, a, a couple who, uh,
1: were married at the time, and then they had a another child, um, my brother Joe, and then my parents got divorced. Yeah, and then uh, my mom remarried. Yeah, and when she remarried, my stepdad he had two kids already. Yeah, and those kids were the exact same age as me and my brother. So, oh, wow. I, um, my sister Jessica was my age, three year, three months younger, and Michael was, oh, like two months older than my brother Joe. So mm-hmm. we're like right. I mean, we all went to the same. Grade. I went into fifth grade with my sister. My brother went into whatever that would be second grade with my other with my stepbrother Michael. Mm-hmm. And then together, my mom and their dad, they had two more girls. So that makes me one of six in that household. Yeah. My dad also remarried. Yeah. And he had two more boys. Yeah. So I've got uh, I'm to- total I'm the oldest of eight. Well. Wow. Okay. Yeah. 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 With steps and halves sprinkled in.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, do you still? Um, Keep in touch with all of your siblings Oh yeah yeah
1: yeah 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 the um,
0: yeah I mean the the six that I grew up with, um,
1: it was we grew up together so I mean I was only I was like 10 years old when I moved in with them. Mm-hmm. so it was really like we became siblings. It's mm-hmm. not I don't I really don't think of siblings more than uh, like halves and steps. they're all, all my siblings yeah um, and then my two little brothers I, I moved in with them. When I went to law school, so in ninety nine I started law school and I was twenty one or twenty two mm-hmm. and my little brothers were only like probably around seven and ten or, mm-hmm. or or maybe a little younger than that, yeah, so I lived with them for three years while they were growing up yeah. and um and, they, you know, it, there's a big age difference between me and my younger siblings. Me and the youngest were 19 years apart. Yeah. So, uh, but still, I yeah, I, I consider them all family, and I, yeah. I we all stay in touch.
0: That's cool. Yeah. So you were, like, around 9 or 10 when your parents got divorced?
1: Younger. they My, my mom remarried when I was about 10, so I think I was more like 7. I think she, okay. yeah, there was, like, a three-year gap between her divorce and remarried.
0: Gotcha. Yeah. Makes sense. Okay. So parents divorced around 7. Now, uh, f- some that's pretty young, but still old enough to be fully aware and have memories and stuff. So, I mean, do you remember that having a pretty big impact on you or you sort of not like, did you know what was going on? Hmm, I don't know. I, I remember things in a lot of flashes
1: and, um, I wonder how much of that stuff continues to affect me today that, you know, even on a subconscious level. Yeah. But I just remember like, it's almost like, Like you, sometimes you have memories of childhood, but then you start to wonder if you're just remembering, like the pictures that you saw of those times, yeah. And if you're not really remembering exactly what happened, yeah. Like I I remember, I don't really have any recollection at all of my dad and my mom living together. I I remember, like snapshots of maybe him coming home when I was really young, and Mm -hmm. him and me being like, "Where were you?" And he would say, "Work." And I'd say, "Did you bring home any money?" And he would give me his loose change. (laughs) Like I remember stuff like that. Yeah. Um. Uh, I remember, like I remember Christmas images, but a lot of it I think is just pictures of Christmas that I saw in that house. Mm-hmm. Um, I do remember the first, like my first real memories now as an adult that that I can really go back to. I do remember starting school in the new school in fifth grade. Uh, I remember going there and feeling like my. My si- I was in fifth grade. It was the last year of elementary school, yeah. and my sister has gone through all of elementary school without a brother in her class. And now, this new kid's in class, and it's her brother. And that was such like a such a big change that it that was like the first groove that was really cut into my head. That I, I remember from that point forward much more than that point back.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So, um, and then you lived with your mom after the divorce. Um, like, did you see your dad often after that?
1: Yeah, him so every other weekend. Yeah. And Wednesdays, I believe he would come and pick us up and we would spend Wednesday afternoons together. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, uh, other than the fact that it was, you know, I only saw him on the weekends. He was there on the weekends and we, we, I mean, he was very involved with us and he supported all of our extracurricular stuff. He paid mm-hmm. for our
0: colleges. He made sure that we were taken care of. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Nice. Cool. So um, you're the oldest. Mm-hmm. How do you... When you look back on yourself growing up, like in your teen years, um, what kind of kid were you uh, back then? Like, did you get in trouble? Were you a good kid? Were you an artistic kid, sports guy? I think, I guess teen years would be high school, right? So high school
1: years, I very much... See, high school was weird because I went... So I in fifth grade, I start going to school with my sister, right? Mm -hmm. My stepsister. And then we go to junior high school, which is like uh, like middle school here. We, yeah. call, uh, we call it junior high school in, in Brooklyn. And um, it was public school. So I went, uh, for up until fourth grade, I went to a Catholic school, private Catholic school in Brooklyn. Then I transferred into school with my stepsister, which was public school. And then I did middle school. But then after middle school, for some reason, everybody went to the the public school that you would graduate to. But I went back to the private all boys Catholic high school that all of the people from my grammar school wound up going to. So after being gone for four years, I'm injected back into this social circle of people that have all gone through puberty and have become teenagers. And I've been gone for four years. I kind of remember them, but I don't really remember them. And all of my new friends have all gone to high school with my sister. Mm -hmm. So I was a little lost when I started high school. And um, I didn't, I was, I was a very good kid in the sense that I wasn't like rebellious or, you know, I didn't drink. I didn't do drugs. I was very much stayed away from that stuff. I remember wanting to do fun things. Like I wanted to do healthy things like play baseball and be involved, but I wasn't very athletic and I wound up trying for the baseball team. I didn't get on it. I went back uh, upset, talked to my mom and she was like, why don't you try out for a school play? And cause she had done theater in high school. And that's where he, she had created her social circle. Mm-hmm. So I tried out for a play. I got in, and that was that was it. That was the rest of high school. Was I was a theater kid, and um, and that was pretty much it for all of high school.
0: Yeah, yeah. Now, did you um, you tried out for the play because mm-hmm. your your mom suggested it? Yeah. Up until that point, had you any artistic leanings like?
1: Not really. No. No. And I, I, not that I could remember at least. Um, but okay, that's not true. I did take band class. You had to take band, orchestra, or chorus in middle school. And I took band and I played trumpet. Yeah. And I fell in love with jazz in mm. middle school. And I fell in love with um, music then. And then in, I started dating a girl in my freshman year of high school, and she played piano, and so I started taking piano lessons. And that was kind of like my my dip into music. But mm-hmm. that quickly, once, once theater hit, I think I shifted into theater, and I stopped doing, I, mean, I probably still
0: played a little bit, but theater became my focus in high school. Yeah. yeah. Did you take to it pretty quick as far as, like, you got it, and you're good at it. Theater, like, yeah, like mm, acting. and No, stuff like I don't that. think so. I don't yeah, think so. but I
1: remember having like with plays. I had a horrible time learning lines. Couldn't like I, I would do my best, and then I would just wing it. Yeah. Um, musicals, I I I never got a main role. I, I think one of them I got to sing a solo, and looking back now, it was horrible. I couldn't really sing. Yeah, out of pitch. But everybody got into the musical for the most part. I think everybody got into the shows, and they found something for you to do. Yeah. And as I went through, I got better and better parts. But yeah. But, uh, no, I don't think I was very good at Not it.
0: Not very good. Did you, like, take to it as far as liking it? Yeah. Did you, like, you loved it right away? I did. Yeah. I did.
1: I liked it because I felt like, the. I think it felt like the most accepting people that I was around. Yeah. You know, like, like even though you had to audition it wasn't like baseball not everybody was getting a part on the team mm-hmm. but with theater for the most part everybody got something yeah. and if not then there was other things to do you could still be involved with tech or with you know some some other support but um, i i feel like you know it's like it's i've heard that the the term the the island of mis, mis, misfit toys mm-hmm. so many times mm-hmm. and it makes sense it's like yeah we're all we're all kind of a little weird here we all have our own little quirks and Welcome to the club. And I, yeah. and I like that a lot.
0: Nice. Okay. So you do uh, theater throughout high school. Graduate on time, I imagine. Yep. Uh, with flying colors. Yeah, 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 I was
1: always, I, for my whole life, I've been like a B-minus student. Everything. Yeah. Since since beginning to the yeah. last
0: day of law school. Yeah, that's fine. Uh, all right. You graduate. Um, go to college right after. Yep. Now, um, did your parents go to college? Uh,
1: my mom went to nursing school yeah my dad went to college he uh he went to college in europe he was born on a farm in czechoslovakia oh, and, wow. and uh he went to school there uh studied he was in ele- he studied electrical engineering there and then moved here in nineteen sixty nine mm. so
0: yeah yeah and invented the uh improv warm up czechoslovakia boom, no. boom. <laughs> yes <laughs> um okay so well, the reason I ask is, like, like did you have uh, an expectation to go to college or some kind of framework from, like, from your parents? Yeah. Like, yeah so oh, what yeah. what you're going to do? Yeah, definitely.
1: Yeah. College, I, like, like even high school. Like I said, I, I went to a high school that was not the high school I was supposed to go to yeah. because my mom went to the sister school of the old boys' Catholic school. She went to the, the sister school of it, and it was like, that's just where you're going to school. Yeah. And when it came time to go to college, it was just like, yeah, you're going to college. Yeah. And I... have Again, I I feel like it was just, you know, you look back at certain chapters of your life and you're like, that wasn't me. That yeah. was some other person that I evolved from. Yeah. But like, I I wouldn't have made those choices. And I I applied to four schools. I applied to Stony Brook, uh, Oswego, Binghamton, and Boston College. And the reason there's a reason for all four of them. Yeah. Boston College because I was dating a girl who's going to Boston College. Oswego was because my cousin had graduated from Oswego and when I was 16 he brought me up to a lacrosse reunion and I hung out there and I smoked pot and I drank and I was and I fell in love with the party aspect of it Mm -hmm. Binghamton my dad knew people that said oh your son should go to Binghamton it's a very prestigious SUNY school and it will cost the same amount but it's like going to an Ivy League school and Stony Brook my stepsister had applied there and it was like the closer school Mm -hmm. Um, I didn't get into Binghamton which was the you know the harder school to get into. I got into the other 3, but my sister decided to go to Stony Brook, so I decided to go to Stony Brook. It was like it was just that was the funnel that got me to college. Yeah. And there was nothing of, in the decision other than that. It's not like I knew what program or what I wanted to study or anything at
0: all. Yeah. Yeah, I was the same way. Um whereas like yeah, I I I'm from Oklahoma, went to the University of Oklahoma. Like didn't like I applied to that Oklahoma and and then just like the the local school in my that town that I was living in. My siblings went there, so yeah, I I didn't even know what I was going to major in, mm-hmm. didn't know the yeah. So like a lot of kids do that. Um so you grew up Catholic? You went to Catholic school? Yep. Like were you pretty hardcore Catholic growing up? Oh yeah. Are yeah. you st- are you still hardcore Catholic now? Nah, not really. I mean, I'm um When's the last time you went to mass? Today. Oh, so, so you go to Mass every Sunday? Yeah, I take my dad every Sunday. Oh, nice. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. I, okay. I He came and spent um, about three weeks with me a year and a half ago, and I took him to Mass every Sunday when he was with me. And then um, I kept going for a little bit, mm-hmm. and then I stopped. And then when he moved back in, I started taking him again. Because when he was living at home, he had, like my younger brothers, they graduated, and they're out doing their thing now. And he was like home by himself, watching Mass on TV, and and he's got diabetes and and other health issues. And it's like, this is the, this is the time of his life where I don't want him. I like, I want him to be able to do things like go to mass or like do the things that he would like to do, but he needs help with it. He can't do it himself. So I feel like it's, it's nice to do. And and now it's interesting going as an adult who came away from that faith and then to look at it, you know, with adult eyes and a more open mind is it's interesting. It's interesting. You know, it's, it's not, I'm, I don't know, it's it's just yeah, it's interesting.
0: So you were pretty hardcore Catholic growing up. Around what age I wanna cover your college years, but around what sure. age did you like separate from sorry, separating from the faith or from,
1: well, from religion? There was a part there was a time in high school that I thought I might be a priest. Yep. Uh, there was a time when I when I got to college, I immediately and I, I joined a fraternity. A couple of guys that were in my fraternity were uh, also Catholic high school students from Staten Island mm-hmm. and they were working with the ministry on campus a little bit. Yeah, And so I became a Eucharistic minister, which is like the, the guys that get to give out the host and the blood and mm-hmm. the, the wine and all that at the yeah. um, at mass. And then, you know, college, I did a lot of drugs in college mm-hmm. and uh, I, that opened my mind up in different ways. And then I think I kind of start like after college started going, I went right to law school and law school just made me think differently. It made yeah. me I, I, I had to change my identity in law school to be the identity of somebody that was studious and took things seriously and wasn't partying all the time and, and all that. And, and then when I got out of law school, it, the, like the mind just kept opening more and more. And then I started reading like Richard Dawkins and I started reading Hitch and stuff like that. And I started reading stuff on atheism. And, but then I started to feel empty. And so I started to research other religions, mm-hmm. um, and Buddhism very, very quickly took hold. And I, I started going to a, uh, a, a Wan Buddhist temple in Manhattan, which is Korean Buddhism. And I started meditating and, and going there quite a bit. Uh, and then I switched to a Zen place in Brooklyn, um, and within about a year or so, I, I considered myself to be Buddhist. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but that was, so that was probably 2002, I'm like 23-ish, 24-ish, 25-ish, yeah, around that time.
0: Yeah. Okay. Um, I'm trying to do the math. How old are you now? 42. 42. Okay. Cool. Are you, do you still consider yourself a Buddhist? Yeah. Yeah. This is interesting because, um, I usually try to follow, follow a timeline, but sure. I'm going on baby. It's tangent, tough. Maybe. It's yeah. tough. I'm, I'm, um, I'm all over the place. Yeah. Yeah. So, I have a similar-ish. Um, so, I grew up Catholic um, and uh, was, I mean, not super hardcore. I prayed. I believed in God. Um, you know, I had I had premarital sex. So, that, I mean, that was a thing. So, like, I wasn't super... <laughs> oh, yeah, I wasn't... But, that- I, I, but I felt really guilty about it, though. <laughs> um, so, I was definitely... I was a Catholic, for sure. Uh, and then I went to college and, like, oddly enough, got really into... Um, Christianity and like fell in with like, I still went to mass, but I fell in with like a non-denominational type, type of, uh, like Bible study group yeah. and, um, and got pretty hardcore. You know, I, I was like, um, you know, I was like evangelizing on the streets and stuff. Uh, wow. I was that kind of guy and, you know, thought about becoming a priest at one time too. Mm-hmm. And then, um, had depression set in at the, around the same time and was not like diagnosed and was just totally didn't know family didn't really like know what to you know no no one no one said go see a doctor sure i just had to pray it away right um and it was awful and miserable and so that op- that kind of opened my eyes to like well how can god let this happen like i'm this is this is the worst yeah um and then sort of after college toward the end of college was getting away from the fake was kind of angry at god and then eventually just kind of like broke away from from all of it and then it wasn't until later, like my twenty, like late twenties, where I'm starting to read, like you know, f- like philosophy books and and um, and get into um, just history in general and just. So I, I'm at that point, just an atheist, and at this point in my life, and for all intents and purposes, an atheist. But I'm running into this thing where I'm I'm wondering if there's a spirit, a, something missing, spirituality wise. Um, have dabbled in stoicism buddhism but just dabbled lightly yeah, and true. so um uh, maybe i ought to um just dive in instead of just dip my toe into different philosophies to try to find i mean you found something in, in buddhism that works for you um and that that could be the answer i don't know but um so what do you like now what do you i want to say what do you believe because that's just like too generic of a question sure um but what of like what is your what are some of your thoughts on spirituality on god if god exists and like sure. sort of the meaning of life et cetera <laughs> and, and happiness you know uh
1: some light banter <laughs> yeah tell me the
0: meaning of life tommy <laughs>
1: um i don't know uh well I guess you got to start with God, right? Yeah. Because that's the big, the big elephant in the room. Yeah. Um. I don't know. I you know, anytime I, it comes up, and it doesn't really come up that much. Um. My question is, like, I'm I'm a lawyer. I still have a lawyer's brain. Yep. So my lawyer brain always tries to, usually whenever that comes up, uh, or whenever anything comes up that feels like. It's, it's a trap that's been set up because mm. the, the do you believe in God question feels like a trap to me. Yeah. Because what's what you're really asking, and I don't mean you, I mean like when anybody asks that, yeah. it's do you believe in what I think in my head the definition of God is. Yeah. And so what I always do is as a lawyer, you always, before you ever trap yourself into an answer, block yourself into an answer, you get more information. Mm-hmm. So I always have to ask, what do you mean by God? Mm-hmm. Do you mean... Um, a a god as told by any one of the organized religions do we mean a creator of the universe do we mean a judge like a judge do we mean um like uh like uh, like um a presider over heaven who whose presence you're in after death and that feels all all like nirvana or whatever we want to label it yeah so it's hard for me to say but i what i what i do know what, what i do feel is that the the more the older i get the more I, the more i learn the more i realize i don't know um and i, I heard what somebody once described this as you imagine yourself in a field and only so much of the field is illuminated, mm-hmm. and um, that what you can see in the field that's illuminated is everything that you know, but the perimeter of of that field is uh, and the boundary past that is what you don't know right now as you learn more, the field gets bigger and you can see, you know more, but the perimeter gets bigger too, mm-hmm. so as you learn more, you realize you what you real you become more conscious of that which you don't know yeah. too so for me i I feel like is there a God? I have to know what that term means for me. Is there a creator? Is there something bigger than us? Is there an unknown? I think definitely there is, you know, I think there's, the, I don't necessarily think it's a religious, like what, but I think that's what all the religions you're trying to point to. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like the, there's, there's this thing I heard once that if you're, um, on a boat and you get stranded in the ocean, um, your taste for certain things will change and you won't know why. So you might start catching fish and you might only want to eat their eyeballs and you don't know why. But it's because there's a nutrient in those eyeballs that your body is telling you you need. It's like, and you don't even know why. It's just like, these things are disgusting, but my brain, for some reason I need this now. Mm -hmm. And I I, kind of believe that there is a universal need in all of us to believe in that that bigger thing Mm -hmm. right it gives us some hope maybe or and and it might just be a placebo thing that's that's i'm fine with that too if that's the case but yeah i don't know it's hard to look up in the sky and to and to see how vast and how big and how and and to look down at how little and how amazing things are on the micro level and not think that there's something much deeper than what we're experiencing yeah um and i'm and i'm okay with Believing in that because there's a lot of shit that I don't understand that I believe in like I don't like I don't understand how my phone works and how (laughs) information comes to the magnetic field like there's stuff out there that's way beyond my comprehension that I have faith in Um, and I don't know I don't know yeah it's a tough question meaning of life I've thought about that one a whole bunch Uh, and I just think meaning of life is a it's a silly question because I think it's really just whatever meaning you give it because you can give positive or negative or indifferent meaning to everything good, bad or indifferent. And like um, I, I've been posting lately about how I've been celebrating Christmas early. And uh, the reason is because there was a time in my life that I became very anti everything, you know, anti religion, anti Christmas, how it's just commercialization. It's, but you know, you can, you can be that You could think that way, but you're still going to have it there. You know, I, I just read today. So they said, um, if you're like, if you don't find joy when it snows, there's still going to be snow. You're just going to have less joy. Yeah. And so I feel like the meaning of life is what's the meaning that you give it for me. A lot, uh, right now it's, it's service. That's, that's what my meaning is. Like I try to put myself in service. Um, it's kind of uh, an AA thing. I haven't been drinking in, I uh, just passed a year of not drinking. Nice. And, um, uh, I go to AA meetings uh, actually on Sundays. I, uh, me and my dad go, we go either uh, before or after Mass. And today actually was, they were talking about service. And that's like, that's what it is to me. It's like I serve my family, serve my kids. My dad's here, I'm taking care of him. Um, the other day I dropped him off at the Center, uh, center for the Blind uh, up above Balboa Park in San Diego. And I was talking with the director. She's like, what what kind of work do you do? I was like, I clean rain gutters. She's like, We got rain gutters here if you want to volunteer. I said, Done. I'll be nice. here next week. Yeah. They're done. Don't no no pay, nothing. Yeah. And it's like, you know, they're doing good things over there. Why can't I give back? And that gives me purpose. So that's the purpose of my life. Yeah. Right. Um Yeah. So I think it's just what whatever it is to you. And if and if you don't like the purpose of your life, well then it's this is your life. Choose to change it.
0: Yeah. Yes, I I can dig that. I I I agree. I think um, the guy who wrote The Stranger, um, French author. I don't know Camus. But, what's
1: that? Is it Camus?
0: Yeah, Albert. Yeah, yeah. Albert Camus. Yeah. yeah. So I, I think he has a similar philosophy of like life is absurd. Yeah. everything's absurd that it's just that we're here and so you have two options one is to kill yourself because you're just like what's the point yeah Everything is is stupid like there's there's everything's chaos yeah or you can inject some meaning into it like you can choose to find meaning or give it meaning yeah and so i agree with that like yeah like um i believe i believe that it's chaos um and that there's no karmic justice in the sense that we want it there might be like probably karmic harmony in the in the universe that's just nature um but um there's no karmic justice as in like the bad people get what they deserve because often they don't or good people suffer right so because of that i'm like okay what there's no real i gotta stop fishing there in that pool because i'm not gonna get anything but it can either be all shit or i can just yeah choose to be like well we're here i might as well enjoy this or try to try i want to try you know i want to i want to choose to to participate and to have meaning and have it be positive and look for good things and and so it's easier said than done but it um, is
1: yeah it is but at the same time you like there's almost nothing that you can't try to reframe you know reframe in a way that that shifts you in a trajectory that like worst. I I can't think of anything that's happened that in my life that I haven't been able to, sometimes it's hard. Sometimes I got to like look back and, and really like, like bend and twist to find the positive, but they're there. Um, and it's how you frame it. Um, for example today, and like, this is personal stuff, but like my, my dad, um, and I, we were talking about, um, you know, at, at meetings you hear a lot of times people are there just because of DUIs. Mm-hmm. And me and him, we never got a DUI. And it's like, we th- we think to ourselves sometimes like, oh, I was so lucky that I didn't get a DUI when I was 21. But then the truth is, was I? Because maybe I would've stopped drinking when I was 21. Yeah, You know? And instead, I spent 20 more years of damaging my body, damaging my mind, losing time that I could've focused on something else. But at the same time I can look back and say I never had law issues. So like there's always gonna be the pro and con columns. It's which side are you gonna keep your eyes on, you yeah. know? And and you could do it with anything because there's I guarantee there are plenty of people in the world that have wonderful things happen to them. And there are still woe is me people like, yeah. oh, I can't, oh, I got a promotion, just more work, uh-huh. just more work, just more responsibility. Yeah. Then there's people, I like, got oh, a promotion, more opportunity, more, ch- yeah, it's more work, but I got more opportunity, can contribute more, can do more. And sometimes it feels like bullshit, like maybe you're just bullshitting yourself, but I really believe that there's nothing wrong with bullshitting yourself if you're bullshitting yourself in a positive direction yeah. you know if, if if you're if you're sliding towards something that's going to make your life better then it's like we bullshit ourselves all the time anyway so if you yeah. can manipulate yourself into a direction that that is going to ultimately lead to a better place rather than take something that's a wonderful thing and manipulate yourself to think it's terrible yeah then lie to yourself a little bit
0: yeah <laughs> yeah no yeah yeah <laughs> yeah I. that's like some people say um i, I heard this this guy dr whale talking about this like um it's just the placebo effect and people are like write off things about oh that's that's not it shows it's just the the placebo effect and he's and he's he says like why are you saying just yeah that's amazing if 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 your mind can trick yourself into accomplishing these these things it's not just something that's a thing yeah sure so it's like yeah why why not um okay Let's go back to your college years. Sure, sure. Okay. So you're there. You party a little bit, do some drug, experimental drugs to expand your mind. Yeah, all sorts of stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, um, yeah. Mushrooms, sure. LSD. Yep. Yeah, booze, of course. Oh, yeah. Uh, That's okay. my cool. That was my, wow, my so do, is, do, I, I've never done um, LSD or mushrooms, mm-hmm. and I'm at the point in my life, because th- those two specifically are in the mainstream now, like as far as... Work with therapy, work with trauma. Um, uh, people in Silicon Valley do it. Um, you know, they're, <laughs> they're, they they microdose LSD yeah, sure. to give them an edge. You know, yeah. and so I'm now wondering, like, hmm, I wonder if this will, if, if it's worth a try to, to to drop acid just for you know, Steve Jobs swears that's you know he, that was a transformative experience for him doing LSD. Yeah. So I was like, am I missing something by not trying these drugs? What would you say, um, to someone like me? Thinking mm. about these things, mm, I don't know. Um, I'd say I'm, be I'm getting a no vibe, <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, I, because I'm never gonna, I, I, I'm not, I don't, I'm not flipping to bad at all. Like, I don't, I don't just say, like, yeah, everybody should do it, it should be totally legal, it should be free. I think there's many, many positives to it. Um, I think that nobody should do them when they're under how old are you? 34. You're plenty, plenty old enough to, yeah. Um, I don't know how it would interact with any type of depression or anything like that. I yeah. know that there are times I I don't know how it affects the chemical balance of serotonin and dopamine and how it affects afterwards. I know that I've I've done um, you know ecstasy and stuff back in college and mm-hmm. and after and uh, while it's has it you know I, I found many f- wonderful. Elements to it, the, the misery that follows is just not worth it. I wouldn't do it anymore. Yeah. It's not, it's certainly not an experience I I, I covet anymore. Yeah. Um uh but now on the positive side, you're an adult who is not going to take too much acid and go on roller coasters. You know, you're probably going to no. be smart about dosage be smart about your set and setting mm-hmm. research it a little bit beforehand of course my honestly my scare that scares the hell out of me these days I was just listening to uh, Joe Rogan's podcast and he was talking to somebody about um, uh, fentanyl this guy just put out a book on fentanyl and he said you know I would hate to be a kid in the party scene these days because drug dealers are putting fentanyl on everything now some of them are putting it on weed because they know if they put just a little, little bit in there, you might not even be able to recognize it, but you will become hooked. And that's what they're looking. So Ugh. sourcing it, I don't know where you oh, yeah. source. Like, I'm I'm an old fucking man now. I haven't done that shit in years. Yeah. So, like, the sourcing of it, I wouldn't know. I wouldn't yeah. know, like, where to get the goods. But, like, but in a controlled environment, if we lived in a world where, like, shrooms were sold at like in Amsterdam where when I used to go to Amsterdam it was I don't even know if they do it there anymore but like you'd have doses you'd have on the box would tell you the effects you know like start with half of the box and 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 you know these are going to be more giggly these are going to be more visual these are going to be more intense um I think there's a lot to extract from that but again I don't know the positives or negatives with any other um Issues that could come up, yeah. Um, but at the same time, I used to love them. <laughs> I used to love them, and that was, and I saw God through them too. I, I had, I had a God them. experience. Yeah, I did. I had, do you, a, I do had you remember the details of that experience. Sure, I do. I do. I was, um, I was well out of law school. I was started my law firm. I had gone back to college to uh, for something. It was like a homecoming or something like that. And a kid that was selling shrooms had like a bag of of like powder. Like it was just like, it was the end. And he, and he, and he was like, give it to you for a hundred bucks. So I took it and, and I, and I was no, no way of measuring it. No, I didn't, I didn't know the dosing or anything like that. And I mean, this is like, this is the end of my experimental phase. Like I'm in my, still my early twenties, but yeah. I started when I was 18. So like, this is, this is the end of it now. Yeah. So I know like, and I've taken some and I've taken, I took some more and I knew how strong they were. And this then one I no, this is shrooms. Shrooms. Okay. And I took a bunch of, so I took a whole bunch one night and my, uh, and I I was laying on my couch, like just comatose. Couldn't, couldn't, I was there, but I could not move anymore. I was just laying down, vegging out. And I, and above me, I saw what looked to me like the fabric of, of space just kind of like tear open. Yeah. And almost like a, like a, like a, almost like, like a nighttime star starry like uh vision of the sky was right there almost like the like the, the the space in my room tore open the ceiling so i could see outside yeah and this floaty woman came through it and she, and it was just from her torso from her from her waist to her head yeah she came through and i was laying on the couch and she like floated down and and her hand came up to my cheek and touched my cheek uh-huh. she didn't speak but i could understand what, like she, i could i heard i knew what she was saying almost tel- tel- telepathically but it wasn't words And she just rubbed my cheek and she said, everything's going to be okay. And then she came back up into the, into the thing and it slowly closed up and she was gone. And I, and I took all of my, my energy to, to like get myself to roll off the couch. And I took a piece of paper and a pen and I scribbled something on it. And then the next morning I woke up and it said, I believe in God. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And that was, that was like the most profound spiritual experience I've ever had was on shrooms.
0: Jeez Louise. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, how can you? I mean, how can you not want to try shrooms now if you listen to that story? Yeah, but
1: I could tell you some horror stories. Like the first time I did it was a nightmare. The first time I did it was eighteen, and my—I um, I remember I was so. I was joining a fraternity and it was still before I had even really started, but I was hanging out with different people and I was, I was just getting into smoking weed mm-hmm. and shrooms came up and I thought, wow, if, if this is what weed is, what could shrooms be? Yeah, but I had no, like no basis at all no mm-hmm. older brothers or sisters mm-hmm. to be like, Hey, this is this. There was no internet at the time. There was mm-hmm. nothing. This is 1995. Yeah. And, yeah. uh, and so we got some and I, I ate, I think I ate like half an eighth, which is like half of a, of, of a regular dose. And I, I just, I lost it. I thought I lost my mind. I thought I I had lost my mind. I thought I was, I remember walking to um, a Dunkin' Donuts and then hanging out. And I thought everybody was looking at me and laughing at me. And then I just excused myself. And they're like, where are you going? I'm like, I gotta go. I gotta wake up early in the morning. And I walked like two miles back to my, my, my dorm room. I got back to my dorm room and I remember seeing the tree outside the window and thinking it was ominous and coming in to get me. It took, it took so long to figure out how to like, navigate what was actually going on and and i and i and i took many many paths to navigate i tried many times and and some were better than others um but i don't know it's kind of like it's 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 like temporary uh enlightenment yeah and it goes away and like all and like there were times that i would go out into the woods with friends and we would we would have conversations and think like We're solving the universe's problems here. We're having these deep, you know, philosophical conversations. And then the next time we'd record ourselves and it sounded like fucking psychopaths. That didn't, it was totally jumbled and all over the place. So, yeah. Who knows? You mm-hmm. know. Yeah. But what I think is is phenomenal about it is that you do kind of realize that there's more out there. That that this is not just a binary world of it's it either. There's yes and no. There's either there's either God or no God. It's like no. There's probably something in the middle that we really don't know. Yeah. That's something different. That's as breathtaking and awe-inspiring. Yeah. But it's we and we've been drawn towards it, but we've just been missing it because it's like like ants probably realize that there's somebody walking above us, but they don't really, they can never really grasp yeah. what's going on. Right. And I think that's probably what we are. We're probably some lower form. That's just trying to grasp what we're, what, what the hell this is.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's the only curiosity I have is because from what I hear from hearing your story, like, cause I, um I don't, I tried, we, it just doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't sit with me. Mm-hmm. And then I, I used to drink. I also am coming up on a year of not drinking Good for you. Congrats. Uh, thank you. Um, but I am terrified of having a, a bad tripping experience and that's probably why I'll never do it. But the reason I am still curious is because not for the temporary, like, you know, buzz, like a, like a you know, drinking will give me, but like for the more permanent, um, Opening of new pathways or just like a new realization that what's that's more permanent. I'm like, okay, that's that sounds like something worthwhile like that's kind of experience because it's permanent like it sticks with you rather than just like a buzz. Um, Maybe I, just I, would, don't
1: know. I would say that there are certain things about it that will stick with you like like the like the idea that um, the idea that there's more than meets the eye. Yeah, that will stick with you. But like the the enlightenments the stuff like that fades very very fast Mm. the like i can't say that it ever cured me of anything it never made me quit smoking cigarettes never made me quit drinking alcohol that that took something very very different very different and um like it never made me feel more secure or it never made me like any of i i don't know i i like you said you have depression. I may have bouts of it. I might have other mental things that go on with me. It's never really gotten to a point where. I mean, I've I've gone to therapy occasionally um, to deal with certain things, but I've always used therapy until it's I've I've dealt, and then mm-hmm. it's like okay, good now, move on. And then if I need it again, it's there for me. Yeah. Um. But I've never felt like any of my problems or any of my challenges in life were solved with any of that. Mm-hmm. It was just. Certain, certain eye-opening things that I wondered too if I could have like, if I might have had those same realizations without it, you yeah. know. But there's also you know uh what's his name? Oh, I forgot his name now. But he says something like this: this this story about like uh, a guy is meditating and he's trying to walk on water, and Buddha sits next to him and says, "What are you doing?" He's like, "I'm meditating. I want to. I want to be able to walk on water." He's like, well, he's like, it's gonna take you a while. He's like, and the ferry only costs a nickel. Mm -hmm. And it's like, okay, so like, we could spend all these years of like meditating or whatever it is to try to reach this enlightenment of like, there's more to meets the eye, or for twenty five bucks, take a a, you know an acid trip and you break your mind open, you realize, holy shit, there's more than meets the eye, you know. So it can be a shortened path. Yeah, don't think it's right for everybody, but I would certainly say that I would never uh, suggest anybody do it before. I mean, and all of my experiences were mostly between the ages of 18 and 25. Yeah. And I would say you probably shouldn't touch it until you're past 25. Yeah, yeah.
0: Nice, cool. All right, um, you give me a lot to think about. Yeah. Uh, so, did you? When did you decide, or when did you know that law school was going to be what you're going to do?
1: Oh, uh, uh, that was my senior year. Didn't know what to do it myself. I had very few op like out like. Um, Prospects on how to get out of college because I didn't have enough. I didn't really have a major didn't have enough credits to graduate in any major uh-huh. So the school had this thing called a multidisciplinary degree, uh-huh. which is like it's like the get the fuck out of here degree yeah. and you get 15 credits from three different areas and you cobble them together to create a degree so I cobbled together sociology economics and business um, and I didn't know what to do with my life afterwards and my my friends, I had friends that were going to law school and I thought I thought that law school, like lawyers, were much higher caliber than the people that I saw that were going to law school. And they were smart guys, but still, but the image in my head compared to what I was seeing, I was mm-hmm. like, that might be something that's acce- uh, like accessible. And it might really make my parents proud. It might be like, I, w- I did it for all the wrong reasons. Yeah. Um, so around that same time, my dad had uh, a stockbroker who uh, offered to interview me for a job. And... I had taken the LSATs to try to get into law school. I did decent enough. So I applied to a few schools and I had an interview on Monday with my dad's stockbroker. And on Friday night, I got my acceptance letter mm. to one one out of the four schools that I applied to. Mm-hmm. The only one that I applied, the, the only acceptance I got. Yeah. And so it was, do I want to go to law school or do I want to go to that interview on Monday? And so I took the lazy way out. I was like, fuck it. I don't want to go to an interview on Monday. I'll just go to law school. Yeah. Everybody will be happy with that. Yeah. And so as I said, I went to law school, not really wanting to be a lawyer or knowing anything about it. I felt like I wasn't ready to work. And if I wasn't going to do what I really wanted to do, at least I'd make a lot of money. Yeah. And 21 years old, young guy, just like seeing all these other young guys that like, like wanting to be masters of the universe, make a lot of money, be powerful. That's kind of the, that's the way the river took me.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, so did you, you didn't know what you wanted to do. Like, did you know, did you want anything that you could grasp? Like, did you want something in particular?
1: No, I, I let go of, so before I went to high school, before I went to college, I had, um, I did theater, and then for about a year before college, I did stand-up comedy uh, from like 17 to 18. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I really wanted to pursue music and acting and the arts. Yeah. And it was just, that was like, I, I, I remember, I think my first like my first uh, major was going to be music major. Um, But I didn't really know how to play an instrument well enough to be a music major. And, um, and so then I thought theater and I started taking theater classes quite a bit. I took, I think I took enough theater classes that I could make theater one of those three disciplinaries, Mm -hmm. but I wound up not doing it because I thought sociology, economics and business would be better suited to get me into a law school at that point. So in my senior year, I cobbled those together. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, had I gone my way with no influence at all, I probably would have just gone straight to the arts. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Where'd you go to law school?
1: Toro Law School. It was in Huntington, New York on Long Island, and it's now in central Islip, New York by the federal courts.
0: Nice. Okay. So you go to law school for all the wrong reasons, you say. Um, How's that experience for you? It was
1: good. I did really well in law school. Yeah? Yeah, I was... um, I graduated early. I graduated a semester early. I went straight through. I did uh, like, uh, it was like fall, spring, summer, fall, spring, summer, fall, graduate. I just, I did not stop. All, yeah. I did all the summers. I um, My freshman, my first year, the, I joined the law review, which is like this prestigious thing that you do in law school. Like uh, there's law review and moot court. And they're like the two honor societies in law school. And you have to write uh, an article to get into uh law review very very hard to get in and so we all wrote these articles and i submitted them and on the day that they like i knew that i got into law review i got like the acceptance letter and that was like this big prestigious thing and then i get there and on the day of the like uh, the ceremony to induct us i'm there sitting and I'm, I'm like listening and then they call my name and i'm like what the fuck was what are they i wasn't paying attention i was like why did they call my name and somebody looks over. They go, "Go up there. You got the award." I was like, "What are you talking about? <laughs> I had no idea." So I go up there and I got the award. And it turns out that the paper that I wrote to get on Law Review, it was the best one, and they they published it. So wow. it got pub- like so at, you know, twenty one years old. I was a published Law Review author. Wow. And um, and then they made me an editor. I became a, a Law Review editor. And yeah, it was like. It, totally out of the ordinary for me. I was like the goof off. Like I went yeah. to law school to kind of prove like I wasn't a fuck up, you know? Yeah. I, could, I could do something.
0: Yeah.
1: And then I did I did really well with it. I, I did good with my classes. I'm still, still a B minus student because I did much better in the beginning and then my last semester, I knew I could just kind of like shit the bed and nobody was gonna say anything. Yeah. So I kind of just took it easy, f- floated out of there. I had a job lined up already. I had been working for a law firm, so I kept that. And then I knew that when I got out, I was going to quit that law firm and start my own thing anyway, so it was like I don't really need to have nobody's going to ever look at my grades. Yeah, um, but yeah, it was law school taught me how to. It taught me a lot about myself how to how to how to learn. I learned how to learn in law school, like I learned what it takes for my brain to retain information. I I can't I cannot just read something. I can't study by reading. I had to create a whole system of learning for myself that that worked, and it did. And I passed the bar on the first time and. I use my system for that. Um,
0: Can you talk but, about this system in more detail? yeah,
1: it's it's just a matter of using multiple modalities of learning in a certain way. So what I would do is, Let's say I'd have to read a chapter of something. Uh, I would read a chapter, and as I'm reading the chapter, I would take notes on the pertinent information from that chapter. I would would extract everything that could possibly be an important piece of information, and I would physically write that out. Mm -hmm. Then I would take that, what all of my notes, I would turn into flashcards. Um, I would, and I would do everything handwritten, no computer, no nothing. So I would hand write out every single flashcard. Then I would use the flashcards and I would be able to read the front of the flashcard and I'd have to know it was on the other side of the flashcard. And when I had every one of those memorized, uh, well, when I had one memorized, it would go in one pile. Then I would have the maybe pile, like that was kind of okay with, and then I would have the, I have no idea pile. And I would continue to try to, I would continue the process of Doing my flashcards everywhere until they all landed in the I know it pile Um, and so it became less about Remembering and more about practice and like doing and if I keep doing if I keep reading and doing and physically Manipulating these cards and putting them in the new pile the process of doing started to like even the ones that I had a hard time learning the fact that I had a hard time learning created this mental groove that made me learn it because it's like, yes, oh, uh, the statute of limitations on this, I have a hard time remembering that because that's on card number 44, which now looks, I could visualize it in my head because I did it so many times. yeah And then when I studied for the bar, I went one step further and the ones that I didn't know, I would take those flashcards and I would blow them up into big like pieces of paper and I would wallpaper my house with them. Wow. So that way I would have to see it. And the stuff I really didn't know would go on the outside of my shower facing in. So as I showered or as I, as I shit, I would even put them on my toilet, like, yeah. the, like facing. Like, the, <laughs> like I knew I had to be there. I like brush my teeth, right? You brush yeah. your teeth twice a day, three times a day. On my mirror would be the stuff that I don't know. So now I'd have to vi- like, and I would know like, okay, this this certain thing I don't know. Where is it? It's in my bathroom. It's on the shower. It's on the left side of the shower. What is it? And I've been looking at it for three months now Mm -hmm. in that shower there every day. And if I know that I don't know it, I always look at it. And it's, it's that, that idea of attacking it from like the visual, the, the, the looking at it, the auditory by saying it, like I have to attack it from every single angle. And I've used that for piano too. Like now as an adult, I started playing piano again and I've learned it so much faster because I've got flashcards. I'm listening to th- I'm listening to podcasts. I'm watching YouTube videos. I've got a teacher. I practice. I, I immerse myself in it, mm-hmm. and it just it changed the way I learn things. Um, nice. So that's law school had a lot of benefits. Very expensive to get mm-hmm. those benefits, but yeah. but uh, it, it certainly changed my trajectory.
0: Yeah. yeah. So h- how did you go from? I imagine it's just this process of learning and going through it, but like going from before law school where you're, you're just kind of like, well, I guess I'll just do this mm-hmm. to toward the end where you're like, you know that I'm going to start my own firm. I mean, that seems like a big decision to, in like, uh, or, or what is yeah. that to you? It's a
1: stupid decision. Yeah. It was, it was, uh, youth and na- naivety and, and, um, ignorance and sometimes you need to be stupid to, to make amazing things happen, yeah. you know? And you know, all this stuff is reflected in clown and improv too. Like it all ties in, but the willingness to, you know, so smart, if I was smart now, like if me at 42, if I told my 23 year old cousin if they said they were going to start a law firm right out of law school, I'd say, don't do that. My brother, my younger brother just graduated law school. He just started working for a law firm. I told him, don't start a law firm. Yeah. Go work for somebody for 10 years. Yeah. Do it. Cause number one, you might hate it and then you can get out nice and easy Yeah, or you might love it. And then you can learn nice and easy. It's so much easier to learn when somebody else is paying you. Yeah. To learn on your own is a nightmare.
0: Yeah,
1: But you know, I, I graduated law school and I did a bunch of crazy things at once. I, I had saved $10,000. That's all the money I had it was $10,000 from the firm that I worked at. I, my dad had given me and my brother, because he had graduated college, he had given us each a, a gift of about $20,000, $25,000 each to like start our lives with. And mm-hmm. what we decided to do with that was to pool it together, and we bought an apartment in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. And then at the same time that I bought that apartment, I quit my job, and I signed a two-year lease in Manhattan, I started my own place. So I had a mortgage, a lease, no income, No job at a new law firm, and I was twenty three. Yeah, at a law school for six months. Yeah, I would tell I wouldn't tell anybody to do that. It's fucking stupid. (laughs) Yeah, but had I the good sense to do to be safer, I I I never would have gone that route, and it all paid off in the end. So, you know, throwing yourself into the shit, I think is a much more... You're going to live once. Throw yourself into the shit. Figure your way out. Mm-hmm. Even if it doesn't work, you're going to learn stuff from it. Like law school didn't work out. I'm not a lawyer anymore. Yeah. But I learned a wealth of information from it. Yeah. So starting a law firm didn't work. I learned a wealth of information from that. You know, uh, There's so many things. Like Again, it comes back to what we were talking about before. Reframe your definition of what it works is and then take what works for you and keep moving forward with that and just leave the rest behind. And then maybe someday you look back and be like, oh, I learned from that too. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I think sometimes a lot of things, I wouldn't have moved to San Diego, man. I wouldn't have moved here if I knew how. I I moved here with, my wife got a job offer. I quit my job. Four weeks later, we got in a car with our two kids and our dog and drove out here. Never even saw the apartment that we were moving into. And I I would not suggest anybody do that. It's crazy. (laughs) But, you know, sometimes you got to take big moves and just... Be like, I, I know I'm um, resilient enough to just figure it out. Yeah. And worst case scenario, what's going to... I told my mom when I left, I was like, worst case scenario, I'm going to move back. Yeah. Best case, it's going to work out. Yeah. So where's the where's the risk? Yeah. But there's risk. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> uh,
0: okay, so... W- you you start your law for your own law firm firm it doesn't work out uh, what happens or like yeah I don't know much like filling those those gaps for me sure
1: it worked in the sense that it, you know we had we had business so I started the firm what the, kind of law didn't you practice I didn't really practice anything at the time yeah. I practiced you know who wants to give me money yeah uh, that was my practice and it started off with getting in touch with other lawyers. And telling them, I'm a new lawyer, I just started a firm, let me do your court appearances for you. So I, I literally, I, I, I don't even think I had an email address. I think I was still, I created a document that said like per diem attorney, $100 per court appearance, New York County only, um, email or fax at this number or call here. And then I took what's called like the um, the lawyer's diary, which is a book that all lawyers get. If you but you got to sign up for it, but it's got like a listing of all lawyers in New York and it's got a calendar in it. So you can calendar out your court cases. So I would just start at A and I find the fax machine and I'd fax the same document over and over to every lawyer I could just find. And that would be my job was to come to the office and fax other lawyers. And one, one at a time, a lawyer would call up, listen, I got a court appearance in New York. Can you cover it? Can you do this? Can you do that? And so I started to build this per diem practice of where I would just go to court for other lawyers. One of the lawyers was a referral from a fraternity brother. It was his mother worked for um, a medical facility and they used this attorney to do their collections work for them. She started to send us to court to do her court appearances. Six months later, she decides she doesn't want to do this practice anymore. But she really likes the way that we've been handling her court appearances. She gives us her entire practice. Hmm. So 23, six months into starting my own law firm, I take over 23 medical facilities, 500 cases in litigation and we're off to the races wow. and, th- and they, and every month we were settling 50 to a hundred cases and taking in a new 50 to a hundred cases. So like the, like the, 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 the volume was always around 500 cases in litigation. Mm-hmm. Um, so over the course of the next seven years or so, we built it up to about 35 medical facilities. Um, probably is we must have had at least 3,000 to 4,000 settlements over the course of that time. Uh, we did really well. But, you know, again, what's your definition of doing really well? We, we made some money. We success. We had, I mean, we were the smallest of the practices when you had like all these bigger practices doing it. But like all state, their attorneys told us you were the smallest law firm that practices this law and you were the biggest thorn in our ass. <laughs> we fucking hate you guys because other firms, they might have 50,000 cases in litigation, so they would settle 5,000 cases at a pop, and they'd settle them at 50%, but my brother and I, because my brother wound up becoming a lawyer too, and he started working with me, we treated every case like it was a, like a legit real case, and mm-hmm. so our number, we were settling cases for 95%, 90%, our numbers were through the roof, and we were doing really well. But then you get to the point where it's like, all right, we're practicing law during the day. We're doing comedy at night. We're doing sketch comedy. And uh, I started started improv. And it's like, doing well does not mean money anymore. Doing well means, am I happy with myself? I'm, I'm 40 pounds overweight. I'm, I'm drinking like a fucking fish. I'm not happy with my life. And uh, in comes Tony Robbins. I went to a Tony Robbins seminar. Totally had no design like no planning on going it but my aunt my mom's sister she went to uh some seminar and it wasn't a tony robbins one but then we went to this thing in manhattan called like the wealth expo and it was like all these different guys selling their pitching their products of these speakers and tony robbins was there he did an amazing presentation and we bought tickets and we went to go see him in jersey and that completely changed my life i i I shifted trajectories again and went in a completely different direction um and I remember at that weekend that I spent there, I had, you know, he makes you do like a dream sheet, which most of these guys do. They'll make you fill out like, where are you today? Where do you want to be? How do we bridge that gap? And I recently looked back and I saw what my dream sheet was. And and one of the things would get out of law. Don't, you know, sell, get out of the practice of law, follow your passion for the arts, do more with comedy, um, you know, uh, get healthy, lose weight, quit drinking, run a marathon, like all these pie in the sky ideas. And um, that was like 07. And it still took about three years after that to whittle everything down, like to wind it down. But by 2010, I was done.
0: Yeah, yeah. with the, with the-
1: with law. We sold the practice in 2010. Uh, I still had, so I, what I, the way I sold it was instead of selling it and being like, here's my practice, thanks for the money. I, so, I started a, a secondary firm with another lawyer, so I was only a named partner, and she ran the firm until she ran it and settled everything out and took care of it. Mm-hmm. So I still made a little bit of money off it for about three years, Yes. Um. but yeah, that was it. And so, yeah, I, I felt like I was no longer doing well with law. Financially, we were doing okay, The um, but I was not ready to put any more effort into something that wasn't passion, and I felt like if I had become this successful at something that I wasn't passionate about, what happens if I put all that energy into something I love? Mm -hmm. And that's when, you know, improv was there for me. That's when it was like, and that's when like the philosophy of improv started to tie into all of these things that I was thinking about life. And it was like, this thing is speaking to me. It's related to comedy, which I've been connected to since I was about 17. This is the direction I want to go. So I just, I wrote letters to every single comedy club, theater, improv club, every, every place in Manhattan saying, this is who I am. I'm I'm Tommy Gallon. I'm a lawyer. I'm selling my law practice. I've been performing with this comedy troupe for the last you know five six years. Um, I'm, I'm I'm I I will do anything for you. I'll sweep your floors. Um, but I'm selling my practice, and this is where I'm going. And nope, I got some form letters back. I got a lot of just no responses. But one of the improv theaters got back in touch, and I met with the owner, and he was like, "Well, I'll give you an internship," and it was unpaid. But I went. I, I started mopping their floors on Monday nights, and that was like that was st patrick's day 2010 hmm. that was when i started
0: yeah. yeah so when did you uh you're doing stand-up like 17 to 18 yeah um and then in the midst of your law firm you've been doing sketch comedy and, yeah. and stuff like so like Did that continue all throughout college and law school or like when did that like when did that come back up again comedy
1: stopped for seven years no comedy at all in college and law school in fact my my fraternity name was Joker and uh, the what was the reason that it was that was because when I had like my interview they asked me what makes you unique what's interesting about you and I said well I spent a year doing stand-up comedy so that's how they gave me okay fine that's gonna be your name is Joker but the irony of it was people would ask me like other fraternity brothers would ask me like, Oh, what's your fraternity name? And I'd say, it's Joker. And they'd be like, but you're not funny. (laughs) And it's like, okay. And that's been like the, the ongoing thing. It's like, I'm, and I'm not, I'm not like an always on person. Like I'm, but when I'm on stage, I put everything I can out there. But when I'm off stage, I'm, I'm not the type of guy who's always doing bits or who's always trying to make people laugh. That's, you know, I, uh, maybe if I'm super comfortable and we're all goofing around, I'm really comfortable with people. But I'm kinda I'm kinda shy and I'm kinda like, you know, a little bit I'm an extrovert, but I'm also very introverted in some ways. Um, but yeah, so college and law school, no comedy at all. Then I got out of that. And my, my brother, my my biological brother, the first one, he went to Fordham to study acting. And he studied acting. He had the balls to say, Fuck you, family, I'm not doing what everybody says. I'm doing what I want to do. And he did acting. And he got out and He had started this troupe in college called uh, Fucked, F-U-C-T. It was the Fordham Underground Comedy Troupe. Uh, Then they decided to take it outside of college and they dropped the Fordham and all that. And they just called it Fucked. And it was it was originally set up as a night where they would have a keg, they'd break into a theater at Fordham and they'd have a keg party and they would all do comedy for each other and they'd try to gross each other out and do outrageous things and stunts and stuff like that. So then they brought it outside, and when they brought it out, I was just getting out of college, and that's when my brother and I were moving in together and I saw him doing this stuff and I was like, I want to do this with you. I've got the I've done a little bit of stand-up. I'm, you know, I I've been through law school, so I can I could present in front of people. I have no problem being on stage. I've got some ideas, I've written some things out. So he presented it to the group and they let me in. So I was the only non-Fordham student that was a part of this group. And we performed together for a number of years and we we toured the the festivals, comedy festivals, uh, not so much, we didn't do any improv, but it was mostly sketch. But sketch bled in like merged in with like jackass type stunts uh uh, but then also merged in with like unexpected talents like we would we would hire um a we we hired an irish step dancer to teach us all a very choreographed irish step dance that we did as an opening for one of our shows Mm -hmm. and we would like two of our guys learned real magic and built a built a huge magic box and did this whole uh david and magic boy scene where and it was like it was really impressive magic so like you'd be watching these guys performing like all right that was super vulgar and gross all right that was a pretty crazy stunt like what's this next thing gonna be? Holy shit, that was a fucking amazing magic trick. It was mm-hmm. like you never really knew which direction it was going to go. Yeah. And we'd push boundaries and we'd try new things. And uh, But then I found improv. And improv was a whole new dimension for me because like I had like this pre-determined idea of what improv was. And then I saw two of the four uh, Cook County Social Club guys down in Austin, Texas at, at um, uh, their comedy festival, at the Out of Bounds Comedy Festival. And they blew my mind. Like, yeah. I couldn't believe. I was like, "This is improv." And then as soon as we got back, I sold my turntables, <laughs> bought myself level one improv yeah. at UCB. And I started at UCB in Manhattan. Um, I took those levels, and and that was it. I was hooked. I was yeah. totally hooked. Yeah,
0: yeah. yeah Cook County. Um, I've seen them. Uh, I saw them perform uh, several times in L.A. Uh, still, might be the best show I've ever seen. No, they're great. was them. Um, They're amazing. Okay. So you, um, all right. So now you're, you're, you you have some years of sketch. You have some years of improv underneath you. You sell, you go to Tony Robbins, a thing. Yeah. What was the main thing of that thing that made you like change your, your life? The main thing,
1: you know, I think the main thing that changes a lot of people is permission. Yeah, You know, like, it's not that I didn't want all those things. I wanted them. Here was a guy who was telling me that I could have them. And it wasn't that, that much to get there. It was just, it was, you know, like he has this thing. He says like, change can happen in a moment. You can make the choice to change. It's like the choice to stay or leave a relationship. That final decision happens in a moment. It might build up to that point, but the choice happens in a moment and that i needed that push i needed that i needed that permission to be like it's okay to change it's okay that yeah people are going to say why why are you not drinking people are, and you're going to have to deal with that it's going to be a challenge but it's okay to do that it's okay to change it's okay to get out there and try to start running it's okay to leave the law and and tear your identity apart and and try to forge a new identity um because so much of society tells you it's not okay to do that. That like play it safe. Get the have a fallback plan. Um, you know, don't don't try to get into shape because people are just you know, it's it's too hard, it's not worth it. People are going to look down upon you, you're gonna make other people uncomfortable. Like there's, there's all these different things, these all these different stories you tell yourself. And for somebody to tell me like it's okay, reframe these things. Take these things that are holding you back and minimize them. And the things that are that, are, uh, that can push you forward, maximize them. Like all these little things. And then, and then there were other things that were just like, the, the fourth day was the funniest because the fourth day is all about health. And he talks about like, back then he would talk about being a vegan and no more dairy products. And, and you could see people getting up and leaving. Huh. And, and by the fourth day, it was half empty, half the people left. And I thought to myself, All these people bought in up to this point. Why was that a road too far? Yeah, And so I thought, well, fuck it. That's where I'm going to start. And I became a vegan. Hmm. And I stopped drinking. And I I lost so much weight. I went from like 210 down to like 160, 165. And uh, it was just like I started running. And that was like maybe in March I went to the seminar. And in November, I ran the New York City Marathon. Nice. And it's like, and then th- there's something really powerful about once you see like the first thing. To, that's why I tell people, take an improv class. I told my wife for years, take an improv class. She's like, I don't want to be a performer. I'm like, take an improv class, just do it. And she finally took one here. She took it with Kat, hmm. Kat when Kat used to be Kat Brown, not Kat yeah, Dudley. Yeah, And um, and then she quit her job. Wow. Yeah, she quit her job. <laughs> she became a freelance writer. and she has been doing it for five years. she She's been self-employed for like, 4 years now. Yeah. She went back to now she's back in grad school and she's doing like changed her life just yeah. just this one little thing and and the thing is again she prob- she wanted it all the way up until that point. Yeah. But she got permission in that class. She yeah. got permission to to run through a fear, you know, to do what she thought she couldn't do, to overcome something. And when you get that permission it's it's it stacks and then yeah. the next thing stacks it's like i got permission to try to change my diet a little bit and then to start running and then to do the next thing and then to do the next thing and, and you build momentum and once the momentum builds it's like now i'm in a different direction i'm on a different path now completely mm-hmm. so that's that's what i think it was and then you know and i you also get into the self-help realm you start reading more books and you go to more seminars and you do more things and at a certain point you have to be like you got to step away from that shit too, yeah. because then you can get too much involved with that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that was definitely a, a major factor, and I didn't go any further than that. I didn't go to any of his other programs. I did read his books for the most part, and I still listen to a lot of his stuff. And I found other people now that I listen to and that I read. Um, but yeah, that that really made a big difference. Yeah, it really did, and it was at the right time. That was like '07, so. Yeah, I was probably just coming up on thirty, you know, getting to the end of my twenties, getting to the end of like, like, what's next? Yeah. I lived, I lived through all the partying. What do I do now?
0: Yeah, so interesting. Um, fun fact: I the I took my first improv class because of Tony Robbins. Oh uh, yeah, because I I was reading one of his books. I'd never been to seminar, but I just I was reading. I uh, think it's like "Awaken the Giant Within." Yeah, sure. Um, and there's a part in there where he's just talking about making decisions. He's like. And at the end of the chapter, he has like, I guess like an assignment where he's like, I want you to like make a decision, something that you've been thinking about in your head, just do it. Yeah. And it was like an improv, like I was in LA and I was like, yeah, I've been trying to, like I've been thinking about improv and it's like, all right. so I just signed up. Um, uh, is that a topic? Right, I was looking at your bookshelf. Um, very well could be. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, so I, um, yeah, so I just, I signed up for IO and took an improv class. So it's interesting. Um, okay. So. You, um, you sell your firm. You're just you, you, this is years of just not. It's not really doing it for you, and and you finally get the permission to do it. Um, you do improv. Like when do you start your your gutter business?
1: So my stepdad is a roofer. Yeah, and I've been climbing roofs with him since I was really young. So maybe like my teenage years. Um, and then when I let's see. So when I got out of law school, I started my law firm and I went back to clean gutters with him because like I'm in hustle mode, right? So I'm I'm trying to do um, jobs for other lawyers, trying to uh, figure out any way I can make money. And I asked him if I could keep doing side work with him and he was like, sure. But I've always been like, even from a kid, I've always, because, so my, my stepdad is a roofer, but he's also... Was an architect and he was the master planner at Fort Hamilton Army Base in Brooklyn, um, and he did work on the side with with uh, roofing. My biological dad owned a uh, like a medical equipment sales and repair company, like you know he did like that stuff, but he had been self employed since 1980. And I always, like what he gave me was this spirit, like again, he's the, the farm Czechoslovakia boy who you know grew up there, came to America and lived the American dream, started his own business, made good money. And um, so that was like always in, like seeded in me as a child, it was like work for yourself. If you can work for yourself, it's great. You can create your own schedule. Like he always planted the seeds of work for yourself. So I've never really been able to work for anybody without trying to without my wheels spinning on how can I do this myself. Uh-huh. So when I started my law firm, which was in the cards, I was definitely going, if I was gonna be a lawyer, I was gonna start my own thing. I was never gonna work for anybody else. Um, I started doing side work with my stepdad, but like within a few months I was like, I could do this shit. I just gotta do it, I just gotta scale it down. I can't install a roof, but I can clean gutters. I can do, I could fix a tile. I could, um, you know, like like, like these little things I could do. So I went out and I bought a ladder and I had no car. I had, uh, I lived in a four story, it was like a five story building with an elevator, but you can't bring a 32 foot extension ladder up an elevator. So I walked, me and my brother, we walked it up four flights of stairs mm-hmm. and it lived in our living room and I would flyer the neighborhood. And so, and then I would just do jobs that I could carry a 32 foot extension ladder to. And I would sh- I would walk there, I would show up, I would do the job and I would walk the ladder all the way back through the neighborhood, back up the stairs up to my place.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, then I finally took over my grandmother's car and I got like a roof rack for it. And yeah. I would show up in like this shitty little 20 year old Toyota Corolla, with this thing on the top of the roof and I would do them then. Uh, and I did that when I started that. Then, I stopped doing that because my law firm picked up. It was like, once I made enough money with the law firm, I could stop that. Then when I sold the law firm, then I started again. I created Brooklyn gutters, and I just did gutter cleaning actually that's not true i did some installation work too and it was great because my stepdad could always bail me out like if i got in over my head i'd call him and be like listen i fucked up this job is way too big i don't know what to do here the, the, the gutters are falling off i can't he would show up like that and he would just help me and he's like a wizard he's like the best at it so yeah he, he'd be like all right go home he would just send me home and he'd be yeah. like bing 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 boom, knock it all done and that's it and he let me take all the money for it he wouldn't even like want anything i'd bring him bottles of wine to thank him and whatnot mm, nice. but so I did that and then when we moved out here, I was still working for the theater in New York when I was out here and um, I did that for like two years but then I started, I was like, I was stay-at-home dad, I was teaching improv at night, working for the theater in New York doing their corporate stuff and I thought, let me hang out my shingle and I'll start doing gutter work out here on the weekends, see if I can scrape, you know, hustle some extra cash uh, but then the first year there was an El Nino and the phone starts ringing off the hook and I've got like 800 clients before I know it and then the next year, it just gets bigger and that's when you know my wife took the improv class and she wanted to quit her job so she quit and um she started freelancing and we just kind of like switched where she started freelancing and she was able to be home to bring the kids back and forth to school and i took the weekdays but i still worked nights and we made it work out uh, so you know climbing a ladder has always just been something that like as long as other people have fear I can always make money. I just have to be able to overcome my fear. Um, and this is a thing that I can do pretty much anywhere. And I thought I couldn't do it in San Diego. Cause it's like, oh, it never rains here. and uh, But that actually was a positive because there's no competition. Uh-huh. Everybody else thought it doesn't rain here. This is a service that's not needed. I thought it doesn't rain here, but I don't know how to do anything else. So I'll just do this. And all of a sudden, just like, boom. And now I've got like, I don't know, I've been on probably 5,000 roofs here now. And I, Probably have a book of about three thousand clients, nice. which is great. I love it. It's, yeah, and I enjoy it. And the other day, I was just—I actually just recorded a solo podcast, and I'm gonna—and kind of the story is in there. But the other day, I was on this apartment build or this uh, office building roof, and this guy comes up to me who obviously works there, and he's like, "You got a shitty job." I'm like, "Really? I used to be a lawyer." He's like, "What?" I was like, "Yeah, I used to be a lawyer." He's like, "I was like that was a shitty job." I was like, "This is in the sun." I live in San Diego now, I work by myself, I've got no boss, I've got no employees, I work until about 3 o'clock, and then I get to go and hang out with my family, and then I go improvise with my friends. Yeah. So I think I got a pretty good job. And then he's like, good for you, man, that's fucking awesome. Yeah. And it's like, eh, you know, one person's shitty job is another person's uh, paradise. I love being out here climbing on, on roofs.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, on paper, it seems like okay, uh, he used to be an attorney, um, now he cleans gutters. Yeah. Um, so people just think automatically think, Oh, well, that's like a fall from grace when nah. it's like you weren't happy and now you are at yeah. least happy, satisfied, fulfilled and doing things that you like and even better, yeah, you kinda of make your own schedule, you're on your own your 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 own boss. Also
1: you only have so many hours in a day, right? <clears throat> yeah. And so you You can choose how you can use those hours. Um, When I was a lawyer, I was trading one hour for X amount of money, right? But I only have 24 hours in a day, so that immediately caps what I can do. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now, I could hire more people. You can also—that's a way to to get around that trading hours for dollars thing. But what you can also do is you can double up on things. So for me, as a lawyer— When I was practicing law, one hour represented one hour of work being a lawyer, right? But now being uh, a a gutter cleaner, I guess I would call myself, when I'm doing that job, because I don't consider myself that. I consider myself an entrepreneur, and that's Mm -hmm. one of the things I do. Mm -hmm. But when I clean gutters, that one hour is no longer just an hour of work. It's an hour of work. It's an hour of exercise, and it's an hour of learning, because I listen to podcasts all day. Hmm. So now I created three hours where one hour used to be, yeah. where, somebody, where I used to have to uh, do one hour of work, then if I wanted to exercise, I would have to spend another hour on exercise. Back then I didn't have podcasts, so I couldn't, so if I want another hour of learning, I'd have to spend another hour of reading, or spending time learning, right? Yeah. So now I get those hours in a day, and when I'm done at the end of the day, I don't have to go to the gym. I don't have to go to school. Um, I've I've put so much information or so much I, I've I've squeezed so much out of those hours that it satisfies those three things. Now more time can be spent with family. Um, the other thing is I bring my kids. I bring my 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 oldest son is he's eleven now and mm-hmm. he's been he's worked with me before. I've taken him there. Uh, I take him in the summertime. I give him and he has his own cell phone now. But part of the deal with that was he has to pay for it, so he's mm-hmm. got to work. Mm. And so he comes to work with me and, or, or I give him work to do that's related to my businesses. And that's just one more hour I've squeezed into that one hour. Now it's work, it's exercise, it's learning, and it's spending time with my kids. Yeah. So it's like how much more can I double, like how much more can I fit in there? You yeah. Know? So yeah, on paper, you're right. It does look like, oh, he wasn't. I always think when I tell people that I work for, I used to be a lawyer, I, I think they must think in their mind I was disbarred. Like I I was like, they must think like he fucked up and now he's got to clean gutters or something. But then I tell them my story, you know, I tell them I actually quit law to teach improv Yeah, and I I did that. And by the time I tell them the story, you know, I have, I have such great relationships with my clients because something that law has taught me improv, Tony Robbins, all this stuff is, how to develop rapport with people mm-hmm. and fast and I'm really good at it and I'm and that's that's what I accredit my business to like my success in business has been the ability to quickly develop rapport with people quickly overcome their objections make them feel comfortable make them feel good and that's what we do in improv you get out on stage you want the audience to calm down you want them to realize you're you're a professional here you got this under control you develop rapport, rapport with them really fast um, it's just a lot of overlap and uh, you know, it's all connected in some way, you know? Yeah. But uh, yeah, I I think it's, it's been a, it's been a crazy journey and it's going to change more. right now I'm in the process of trying to figure out how to, how to maybe bring in some more people to work, but I'm, I don't know. I need another seminar. I'm afraid. Yeah. I'm afraid. That's what it is. I'm scared. I'm scared of letting go. I'm scared of somebody else getting hurt. Mm-hmm. on my time you know mm-hmm. on my on, in my business if somebody falls off a roof or something like i don't i don't know how i'd live with that i'm I'm afraid of losing that personal connection with my clients mm-hmm. so you know for all the things i've learned i'm only 42 i got a lot more learning to do yeah and, I,
0: and i'm i aware of that yeah nice oh here's the two things i want to talk about now uh or b- before we wrap up one is um getting married and having kids mm-hmm. um because i'm unmarried with no kids but i have a long-term girlfriend and those are things that are on the horizon or or maybe closer than i think and i feel i feel certain ways about them um another mm-hmm. the thing is just uh it's clowning mm-hmm. um kind of ha- how you got into that what that means to you and yeah sure. I, i've only seen one clown show okay i think in my entire life it was a student show like a month ago ah. and i keep wanting to see more you know but um
1: well, we're coming back.
0: They're they're rare. Uh They won't be anymore. Okay, good. Yeah. Um so I guess let's, let's start with the clowning. So h- sure. how did you, how did you get into clowning and why have you taken to it so much harder than um or I mean like or I guess just why did you take to it so so deep and so hard that like it's it's something that you teach and the, you kind of brought it to San Diego at least to FCI yeah. and and starting this whole this whole clowning um, kind of movement here in, in SD. So, t- tell me about that.
1: Uh, okay, so I've told the story before. I'll, I'll keep it. I'll keep it um, brief. If anybody who's listening has heard this before, but when I was performing with Fucked in New York, there was one show that we did where we, uh, our group was a group of mostly men. We had, I think, there were. It changed at different times, but there was like a core of like maybe six or seven guys and one woman, and then we had a female stage manager who also did lights, and we would always have like an extra person come in to help us with tech. It was always different, Um, but we were always trying to do something different, new. And at some point, I don't know how we got hooked up with them, but there was this troupe in Brooklyn called Lady Circus, and it was all women, and they. Did like they? They had like a warehouse, and they did these underground circus shows. And it was it was um, and the the warehouse they had was called the House of Yes. And they still I think it's still in operation in Brooklyn. And they had aerialists and like trapeze and lyra and silks, and it was amazing. And so, we decided to team up with them. We were going to do a show in Brooklyn at their warehouse, and we wrote the show, and they choreographed and uh, taught us how to do the circus arts, the aerial, the trapeze and all that stilt walking. I learned stilt walking. I learned um, uh, how to climb 40 feet in the air on a silk. It was amazing. So we did that. And some point throughout that, um, my brother and I, I think one one of the performers, one of the women, she was like, you know what you guys are. She's like, you're more like sideshow. Kind of like clowning, but like like clown and sideshow, and my brother and I realized like that's interesting. We kind of like sideshow makes sense, but clown we never really thought about clown. And I didn't really think too much about it, but he started to uh, research it more and investigate it. He took a clown class in New York at uh, the Pit that was taught by Eric Davis, who is uh, Red Bastard. I don't know if you ever heard of him. He's <clears throat> he's in a Cirque du Soleil show right now. I. I believe it's in Europe although I think he was just back in the States I'm not sure he came down here once I got in touch with him he came down here he taught some workshops he did some private coaching for me and my troop Um, but my brother took his class and it really opened up his eyes to what clowning was and again it's like so much in life of like these moments that you like you realize when your life changes like this expansion of your consciousness it's like oh I thought that meant something else this is what it really means now and so clowning to me when it started to when I started to realize I start, I did improv first. My brother started doing clowning, and then he started to introduce me to it. And he's like, "Tommy, we play like clowns. We play physical. We play emotional." He's like, "It's," he's like, "We are already doing this, and we don't realize it." So, he he told that to me. And then he started coming here and doing worship. I didn't really even start clowning until I was in San Diego, uh, other than what I was doing in New York, that felt like just physical comedy. Yeah, and then uh, just started bringing in more teachers here and i started doing shows i had wanted to do a show in new york for a long time but again fear didn't like i was afraid nervous to do it and then and then amy who, who runs the theater uh, i brought it to her and she's always been so open to experimenting and new ideas and trying stuff i said can i try to put up a clown troupe and she's like absolutely and this is this is year one of fci mm-hmm. so she said yes and we uh we put it up she was actually one of my first clowns and you know Keith James. Mm-hmm. Keith James was in my first clowns. Yes. His 2 professor partner Marcus was one of my clowns. Uh, Dino, who was here back then, Matt Harris, who I was on teams with. I kind of cobbled together the people that I really liked playing with, and we did a clown show, and it was fantastic. It went. It felt like a party. It felt It felt like a like a party with the audience. Mm-hmm. And then we did a few more, and it just. And then I brought in more more. Uh, Master clowns to teach us and then I started cobbling together thoughts of like improv I was teaching improv already and I started to incorporate clown into my improv and it just evolved into that yeah, and I think why I Grasped onto it so much was I Guess because of the freedom of it, you know, I have a hard time Improvising with words like I like if you give me a suggestion now I could do it, I could start with words but I always feel more comfortable being inspired physically. Mm-hmm. Words, words to me feel like thinking. Yeah. Physicality feels like inspiration and I can let go. I don't have to really make sense of it right away. And then eventually my brain will click in and go, oh, you're moving around like somebody that's happy. So that's in front of me now. It's not that I'm inventing it, I'm finding it. I found that I'm a happy person. I'm, mm-hmm. I find, uh, last night I did a show with my, my old um, Duo partner. She came down from LA. Lauren, Lauren Flynn, and the first the suggestion was college, and I saw her sit down as a student, but I felt physically like she felt younger, and I felt like I wasn't on her level, and I thought, oh, that's because I'm not a student. I'm like it's it's not that I'm making the choice; it's that I'm I'm letting my body be inspired. That tells me my emotion, and and it starts to tell me who I am. And so my goal with improv and with clown is to, as much as I can, eliminate choices. I, I want to make no choices. I want it, I want the scene to put the information in front of me and me to just follow, you know, uh-huh. just keep walking in the step that's illuminated by the next moment, and that's it. Um, and clown gives you a lot of freedom because it does teach you how to... I mean, the first, the first level of clowning, all seven classes, you don't speak. In my classes, you don't speak. So... Because all I want you to do is really tap into communication through physicality and emotion. Mm-hmm. And there's so much there that when you get through it and you realize there's that much there, you start bringing that into your improv, it makes improv feel like a walk in the park because yeah. you've got this tool belt that just makes everything else appear now instead of you having to, to, to invent.
0: Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. I, um, where I'm at in my improv journey right now is I think I'm, I'm trying to let go of um, thinking, like so much of my comedy brain is driven by, um, you know, words and and being clever and and speaking and u- using my voice mm-hmm. um, and not so much my body, and uh, this is just like my my entire life um, and like I have always been. At least, or we younger, I was I the person who was on or like try to like I love to make people laugh. Sure. I'm realizing now that I think it's a form of control. Yeah. But um but so now that I'm doing improv, it, first that 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 has to go away um because you can't be funny on in an improv scene. You you'll kill it. Right? Or you yeah. can't try to be funny. Yeah. You have to be I get it. you have to be serious or like you have to really be into this character. But now I'm, tr- I'm trying to think even less and and um you know, people I've always heard that getting into your body is that's how you do it. Like you stop thinking so much and just yeah, so um, I might have to take an improv or a clowning class. Um, anyway, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And. Uh, you asked me about my wife and kids too. Yes. No. Yeah. I So how old were you when you met your wife and then how long did you date before you got married? I was 23 and she was 18. Yeah. Uh, I was in my summer
1: between first and second year of law school and she was graduating high school. Yeah. Um, my fraternity brother was graduating college mm-hmm. and I went to his college graduation party. Mm-hmm. His younger sister was graduating high school mm-hmm. and the parents were having a joint graduation party for them. Yeah. My wife was one of my buddy's sister's friends. Yeah. And I went to this party. I was on my way to Manhattan to go to like a like a night, like a club. Mm-hmm. And um, I decided to just stop off to say, you know, to like, show show my face and be there for the graduation that I was going to go to the city. I got there. I saw one of my other buddies talking to this cute 18-year-old blonde girl. And I was like, ah, he's, he's made the move already. Let me go get in there and I can at least start talking to people. So I started talking to them. And uh, Nicole walked up and she started talking. So it was the two of them and the two of us. And he was talking to her. I started talking to Nicole. And that was it. That's how we met. Yeah. I made her a drink. Went inside. We played a little. My, my buddy played a little piano. Yeah kissing happened and that was
0: it okay so like the first time you met you were like it there was attraction there oh and yeah, yeah you yeah. kissed that that same okay cool yeah. now did you guys like date continuously up until you got married
1: yeah she that was july and she was leaving in august or september for college she was going to philadelphia yeah and um I was still in law school and I spent the next three years driving to Philadelphia every weekend where yeah. she came up to visit me Yeah, um, and we did a long distance relationship for three years. Yeah, And then when she, she graduated a year early. So she graduated in three years. She moved back to Long Island. She went to med school for a year, but then dropped out of that and moved in with me and went to nursing school in Manhattan. And we've been together ever since.
0: Yeah. Wow. So, so we oh. met in two thousand. Yeah, okay. And then um We got married in 06. Okay. So three years of long distance and then yeah. three years of being in- We got engaged in oh four and we were engaged for two years. Yeah. Um had you had you dated like much before then? Yeah.
1: I was in a three year relationship with somebody mm-hmm. in college. Yeah. Uh before that I was in a Couple of shorter relationships with girls from high school. Mm -hmm. I've pretty much been in a relationship my entire life from the age of thirteen until now, with no more than a three-month gap ever. Jeez! Wow. Yeah.
0: Yeah. My first girlfriend.
1: My first girlfriend was thirteen. That was one year. We broke up very quickly. I started dating another girl for a couple months. We broke up. Yeah, it was always like within two or three months. Just. Never Nobody, really
0: looking, just 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 happens. Just, just happens. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Well, okay. I I want to I want to dissect that because, sure. I mean, were you? I I'm sure most people, or at least most boys, you know, they they want to have a girlfriend from 13 on, but <laughs> not all of them are dating as prolifically as you were. So, were you just a stud growing no, up, I, I, or like no. was there something about? looking back and you, you yeah. kind of have to dissect your own your your own damn self looking yeah. back was there something about you that that you were drawn to being in, in relationships i don't like being alone yeah
1: yeah I, my, I tell my wife now i was like if you die i'm never getting married again she's like fuck you you'll be married in three months <laughs> and she's right yeah she's right. i don't like being alone i don't i i like companionship i like um I fall in love very easily, mm. very fast. Mm. Very, fa- I, I'm pretty sure that the night that I met my wife, I on the way back home, I called my stepsister and I was like, I think I might have found the one. Yeah, but I might have said that in the past too. I don't know. I just like yeah. I, I fall in love fast. I, um, yeah, I don't know. I certainly not a stud or anything like that. I mean, I, the first girl I dated, we met at a dance, and I just. I I saw that the people that were having the most fun were dancing and Mm -hmm. the people that weren't having fun weren't dancing and so I just forced myself through my embarrassment to dance and I wound up dancing into a circle with a bunch of people. Mm -hmm. And I was a freshman in high school and that dance circle shifted when the music went to a slow music song and it was just me and this girl that I was dancing next to and we started slow dancing and then we started kissing. And then we exchanged numbers at the end of the night and we dated for a year after that. Nice. I was only 13 years old, but it was an innocent and really beautiful relationship. And I'm still I'm friends with her on Facebook now. Yeah. And, um, but just organic, you know, organically met people and dated.
0: It's But you don't like being alone. So that's, uh, yeah, that's, that yeah, that plays a part of it, I, I think. I think so. Yeah. I
1: think so. I, I don't, like, I remember, yeah, like it's, it's, I think it's my biggest fear is being alone. Hmm. I don't like it. I don't like being. I don't like being in this house alone. Yeah. I don't like being by myself. Uh, even I've even come to learn as an adult, like, or like move, moving it through in my life, that like the reason why stand up never really worked for me was because I was alone. Mm-hmm. You know, improv works for me because it's a team. It's people. I'm with people. Mm-hmm. I did a solo show uh, about six months ago. And I was out with Lauren last night before our show and I was telling her how the show went well and it was fun, but then I got backstage and I took my makeup off by myself and there was none of that like, hey, when you did that thing and the audience member and this guy did that, and oh, that was so great. But that scene when you turned that thing into the it was none of that. It was just quiet by myself mm-hmm. and like it was lonely. Mm-hmm. And I thought, fuck, I'd rather just, you know, as much as I would love to be able to do stand-up or to do those things, I don't know if the pursuit of that solitary practice is really what makes me feel fulfilled. Yeah. I, w- I want to be with other people and I want to get off stage with them and I want to celebrate with them. There's yeah. something about that being with people that really energizes me.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. Um, up until I think now, I was the opposite where I preferred being alone. I... I valued my solitude and and can only handle being around people so much um i'm starting to realize now i'm starting to change Um, i notice i'm noticing when my girlfriend is gone like out of she goes on an out-of-town trip i get down a lot more so i'm like starting to notice like okay now i i used to think i was okay with being alone but it started to change a little bit yeah um now so did you did you like were you someone who knew that or that you always wanted to get married and have children? I think so. Yeah.
1: I think so. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I think so. Because my, co- I mean, although it would have been probably bad for both of us, my college girlfriend towards the end, I thought like, yeah, we're just going to graduate college and then we'll eventually get married and have kids and that will be that. You yeah. know, I, that just always seemed like, like if I never, if I didn't think that I wouldn't want to be in a relationship with a person. Yeah. It was like, that's, in my head, that was the math of it. Yeah. Like we date and then we're dating because we're going in that direction. And if we don't feel like we're going to get married, then why are we even continuing this? It's mm-hmm. like that, that was always the end game I think in my mm-hmm. head. Yeah. Yeah. Even, even probably when I was 13.
0: Interesting. Yeah.
1: Cause I remember the third, I remember when I had like telephone conversations with that girl when I was 13 saying like, like, you know, like I remember my parents would be like, you're not going, you're not allowed to go on dates by yourself. You're 13. You can go to her house. She can come here. That's fine. And I remember saying stuff like, look, if, we, if we're if we going to make this work, we're going to have to live within our parents' boundaries and whatnot. But in my head, make it work meant like if we're going to be high school sweethearts that follow this through through college and then eventually get married, we're yeah. going to have to deal with what's going on now. I'm pretty sure that's where my head was. Yeah. So I think, yeah, it always was that. Like my head was always like, this is what a relationship is. This is where
0: it ends up going, you know? Yeah. Damn, the foresight, because I I mean, that makes sense logically, of course, but I just don't think that, um, you know, I was thinking that far ahead, Um, you know, but I don't know why it wouldn't be, but it's just different people. I don't know. That's, but that's interesting. Um, Okay. And then, so you get married. Um, So, well, let me ask you this as a parent, or I'll... I'm going to tell you some information, and then you sure. tell me what you think about it. Um, when I think of having children, I'm afraid. I, I used to be sort of the... I used to have the selfish thing of like, well, I just want to live my own life and not have to worry about other people. I want to do my own thing. Now I'm realizing, you know, okay, I, I don't really have much of a life that I... You know, I, I do improv, <laughs> and that's I enjoy that. But like, I have no life that's going to be lost to children. Um, so I'm okay with that. But I'm afraid of, for one, because I have mental illness and I just, I've suffered a lot in my, and well, I, I suffered I suffer greatly in a, kind of a, a short period of time or like maybe mm-hmm. half my life. Um, and so now I view life a little bit of like, well, life is a lot of suffering. And if I have a child, they're going to suffer and I don't want that to happen. Number two is I don't want to... I imagine when you have a child, you're going to love them a lot. And that there's going to be a lot of worry about their safety. And there could be, there's a potential for pain for, for me as a father, if my child gets hurt or something. Um, on the other side, there's obviously some positive things about having a child. I, I imagine that it's something that's just, you, you can't possibly know until you have a child, but there's obviously something good there. Um, because people keep doing it. Um, So I'm not asking you to like prove me wrong or right or anything like that, (laughs) but what is your take, having that that information and uh, having three children, um, what what is your experience like as a father? And if you can speak to any of that stuff, feel free. Wow.
1: Um, Life's messy. You know, you have... You kind of have to take it all, you know. You gotta take the up and the down. You don't get to, you don't get to just get the up. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it would be as wonderful if you didn't have the down. Mm-hmm. You know, like, um, yeah, it it is scary. You you your fear is not unusual or abnormal or unfounded, for that matter. It's there's plenty to be afraid of. But it's again. How do you frame your fear? What is it there for? Is what is it telling you? You know, your fear is telling. Like, I got a pool out back. There's a gate around it because I'm afraid my toddler's going to drown. Mm-hmm. If I didn't have that fear, then I'm not going to take the precautions that are necessary to keep him safe. Mm-hmm. So, uh, or I could wrap him in bubble wrap and never let him out of the house. Yeah. So it's like it, you have to find that balance of yeah. how to mitigate your fears. To have the opportunity to experience all the other wonderful stuff. Um, As far as like suffering and pain, it's like, yeah, you don't want them to suffer and you don't want them to be in pain, but you have to like recognize how much growth comes out of suffering and how like it's the first tenant of Buddhism, you know, it's the first noble truth. There's suffering. There is suffering. Life is about suffering. Mm -hmm. Um, But I really, really, really believe that it's like the whole experience, like the whole experience of consciousness and of life. It's a, it's partially emerges because of the the like the duality or the like the the two sides of pleasure and pain, right? Heaven. I was in church today, and the the, the priest, you know, he was talking about in the in the in the homily. He was talking about um, heaven. And I always love it when anybody talks about heaven like they know what the hell they're talking about. <laughs> um, but he was saying how like, oh no, in heaven um, we'll, we'll all be there but you won't know each other, you won't see each other but you'll all be happy in the presence of God. And people ask me, why do, why do we feel sad? Why don't we feel sad because we don't see our mom anymore but we're in the presence of God? And he's like, because there's no more sadness because you're in the presence of God. And I was like, all right, first of all, you're a human being saying all this stuff. So I'm going to take everything you're saying with a grain of salt. I appreciate that you probably have studied theology and that's what you're deducing from all this. But there's a part of me that when I reflect on heaven, the idea of always being happy feels empty to me. It feels like uh, you, you don't know what hap Like happiness is what? Uh, chocolate frozen yogurt on a hot day. But if all I have is chocolate furs and yogurt on a hot day, very quickly that happiness disappears. And so, how quickly does heaven turn into hell when you have nothing to juxtapose it against to realize how beneficial, how how privileged you are to be feeling this feeling, right? So, I last year or less than a year ago, my little guy, when we were house hunting, we went to a house and. As we were leaving, he let go of my wife's hand and he tripped and he fell and he hit his head on the corner of a tile platform and Mm. he split his face open. Mm. Uh, He needed five stitches across his forehead. He bled into his face horribly. And it was the most, I thought he, we thought that it had gone into his skull because Mm -hmm. it was such a bad wound. And like, yeah, I'd love to erase all those times. You know, I'd love to be able to uh, not have those experiences but like that's the like those things make you realize how precious that kid is and you know how like it's in those moments that you realize how much you love them and how much you want to protect them and take care of them and it's in those moments that like like i've been injured and you've been injured and it's in those moments that you realize how much somebody loves you that they're willing to take care of you that they're willing to save your ass that they're willing to you know uh continue to be there for you like so like yeah pain is a thing and 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 suffering is a thing but it's i really 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 believe it serves a purpose i really do i don't think it's i don't think it's just like this superfluous thing that's just there like and and even earlier you had said something like um like when you were younger like the idea of god like how could god let that suffering happen right but that comes back to that whole thing for me of like, got to reframe it. Maybe there's, maybe there's a reason there. Maybe there's like, my mom always would say like, there's a reason for everything. And I'd be like, that's bullshit. But it's, it's only bullshit if you don't find the reason. Like we make the reason for everything. Yeah. If you find a reason for everything, great. And then learn from it and grow from it. Like I will never let my kid run around in a strange house that thing, you know, I'm not more on top of him. But but I will fuck up, too. I will make mistakes. So, like, all these things, we learn from them, we move forward. But there's been nothing that I've done in my life within the last 11 years of having kids that has ever made me say, there's nothing that's happened, no no experience, no amount of suffering that I've ever said I shouldn't have done that. That was a mistake to have kids. The suffering wasn't worth it. The pain wasn't worth the the, the positives. It's it's all been massively worth it. Massively. Mm -hmm. I'm crazy about my kids. Mm -hmm. Like, I... There's nothing in my life that's better than hanging out with them at all. I love them so much. And like, I don't know, maybe it comes back to the thing like I don't like being alone, you know, but like, not only am I not alone, I'm like surrounded by three more of me. <laughs> and, <then> it's, <laughs> yeah. and it's great. And I'm in charge of like, like shaping them and, and teaching them. Yeah. And then the, the dimension of having my dad live with me now and how that changes things. It's, just, it's wild.
0: Yeah. yeah. Can you, can you describe in words what this is it's so vast, I'm sure. But one, one of the things, or what's a thing that's great about having children? Like, what is it that it does for you that makes it worth it for you to to be a father?
1: Um, I guess there's a there's a few things. One, I I do love the idea of teaching them, like like teaching them my philosophies almost mm-hmm. and improving upon what my parents taught me. Because mm-hmm. I think my parents really did a, a a great job and they did their best with what they had. And I, I try to build on that and like course correct where I think they they might have been off. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, try, I mean, this is, I don't even know if this is what I like. This just is popping into my head, like writing my own wrongs, you know? Like, yeah. like. Like I would not let my kids go to law school because they thought that I wanted them to go to law school. Yeah. I, w- I will encourage them to, um, really do what they want to do. Yeah. Follow what they want. Yeah. Um, b- but I think the thing I've learned the most is like family kids, especially it's like a, it's like a constant practice of practice. So like, like if you, if you have a Buddhist practice and your practice is of uh, breathing and letting things go, then your children will provide the practice of that. Like they will provide you the practice of exercising your patience. If you, um, like, th- they're, they're, they're so intricate. And, there's, and that's the other thing. You think of, like, I always thought kids are kids. They're not. They're people. They're people. And, mm. and like... It, it makes you realize how indiv like having multiple. That's another thing. Like how in how much not they're just people, but they're individuals, mm-hmm. and they need to be treated as individuals. And we we try. We've always from the beginning tried to talk to them like they're adults and not like they. We, we never baby talk to them. Or even my little one. My dad sometimes he'll be like, "You talk to him like he's you know your business partner." <laughs> it's like yeah, because I want I want him to realize that like. If I have expectations of him, it's it's I have I have expectations of him. I have, you know, I, I expect him to have responsibilities. And he's three. Uh-huh. But so I, re- I expect that he doesn't throw his milk on the floor. And I'll explain why. You know? And it might sound, like, I don't say, like, we don't throw our milk on the floor. It's like, look, if you throw your milk on the floor, what happens if mom comes in and doesn't see it? She's going to slip and she's going to fall and she's going to get hurt. Do you want to hurt somebody because you were careless? I'm like that sounds like you're talking to uh, you know a, a 10-year-old but he's a 3-year-old. And you see they know so much more than you give them credit for and mm-hmm. like it's just you know it's like they're like little they're like little enlightenment uh, like buddies because they're constantly opening your mind to different things mm. and and they see and they they see things from different perspectives. I I think you got to not think of that. You can't think about them as the as the kids that we were growing up to be programmed to look at them as you know like we I, I feel like we might have been looked at kid as as kids when we were kids and how did that make us feel i remember when i was a kid thinking i'm gonna watch cartoons for the rest of my life and when i grow up i'm not going to lose this thing called childhood and i did in in some ways but i also didn't in a lot of ways yeah. like the like performing and playing and clown and all that And i try to impart that on my kids but my kids will wake me up. Like like there'll be times that I realize I'm saying no and I'm being like a curmudgeon when I don't need to be. And like, they're like, practice in action your whole life.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I don't think it gets, I don't think it changes. Cause like, I remember when I, one of the times I stopped drinking, my, I said to my stepdad, I was like, yeah, you know, I'm not drinking, but I'm, you know, maybe maybe when the kids are all grown up because then, you know, I don't have them like looking up to me. He goes, Tommy, they're always going to look up to you. And I was like, "Fuck, you're right. <laughs> you're so right." <laughs> yeah. you know. but that's it. They like they 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 really they really give you if you really care, like if you really care about being a good parent, and I really do. I really want to be a good parent. They give you the ability to exercise that every day, and you're gonna fuck up. You know, comes back again to improv and how it all ties together. But like, they help you understand mistakes and it's okay and like and they'll be time, and i'm straightforward with them like there'll be times that if i fuck up i will go to them i'll be like listen i'm sorry i yelled at you in front of your friends i shouldn't have done that i should have brought you into the other room we should have talked about it and their their level of forgiveness is amazing like it's okay dad i understand that maybe i shouldn't have been so angry like and i there's something about seeing them acting mature that you feel like ah oh, i I did I did do something right even in my fuck ups even in my mistakes like I, I did I did some things right and they say you know when you're raising kids you're really raising your grandkids and I hope that that's the case I hope like I hope I'm planting the seeds that like this like the seeds that I plant in them f- unfold in other generations right? yeah uh, I think that is going to be way more beneficial than like if I if, if I was a successful lawyer that left them money or something like that yeah yeah
0: for sure thank you yeah sure I'm gonna go home and Um, make some babies knock my girlfriend (laughs) up tonight (laughs) Uh, cool man that's um, all right thank you so much for sharing so much Uh, the last thing what are um, really quick um, what are a few like a book or two or three that um, just in general you recommend to people looking for just enlightening type of reads not for transcendent type of thing but just like oh like this will help me in some way in my life Gotcha. Well, I don't read anymore. I listen to
1: listen. audio books nice. now. Um, which I kind of don't like. I really, I wanted to, I have a, a Charlie Chaplin biography paper, like actual hardcover that I got maybe two years ago. for Christmas. Yeah. I really want to sit down and read that. Yeah. But the audiobook that I listened to the most recently that was another one of those life-changing books was uh, David Goggins' Can't Hurt Me. And David Goggins is a uh, Navy SEAL. Yeah. And um he is an ultra marathon runner and it's just a, I mean, horrible upbringing beaten by his father, uh, you know, like just depressed, overweight, mental issues, uh, family issues, sick, like so many things. And then he finally decided to turn his life around and he became like this decorated Navy seal. He went, then, then he went into the Rangers and became a Ranger. Then he went into like the like the fire department, like even after all these accolades, went back to the beginning, back mm-hmm. to the beginning, back to the base of suffering, back to learning who he was through fighting and suffering and, and ultra marathons. He just ran the Badwater 200 or 250, which is like a 240, which is like a 250 mile race. Huh. He got to 190 miles or something crazy like that. And he went into like kidney failure. Mm-hmm. They, he did not finish the race. They brought him to the hospital. He was in the hospital for three days. The day he checked out, he went right back to where he was on the race. The race was over. He yeah. was done. He could not even be recognized for it. Went, finished the fucking race. <laughs> did, like, and that was it. And he recognized, I failed. I'm a failure and I don't care. I'm just... And every time he finishes a race or wins a race, People would be like, congratulations! He's like, I don't know what you're talking about. It's done. That's the past. It doesn't exist anymore. Cool. He's like, tomorrow, next race, yeah. next thing. Always looking forward. Always fighting. Always. And it's just, it was such an inspiring book. And I, and I remember, I, I, um, I listened to that. And I, and this is like, this is last year. So this is like the most recent thing after a long line of like self help things and all that. And I went home and I, <laughs> stupid, I, I blew out both of my elbows because I decided to see how many push-ups I could do in an hour and how many pull-ups I can do in an hour. Yeah. And I wound up giving myself tendinitis in both elbows, and I still have it now after wow. a, year, a year later. Wow. It's much better now, but yeah. it, it was really bad. Um, but, you know, it's like his whole thing is like suffering is good. You learn from it. You move from it. Like, um, just keep fighting through it. And, and I like that. I like that because I don't think, like... I see my dad now, he's 71, he's got his own struggles. It's not like it ever gets easier, yeah. you know? And I think that all we can do is just keep fighting and keep, you know, dealing with our suffering. And like, you know, it, what's nice about Buddhism to me is like there's suffering, but there's also an answer to suffering. You know, there's there's a, a path. And I think like, that's that's really
0: inspiring to me. Yeah, yeah. so David Goggins can't hurt me. Very got
1: it. Fantastic. Yeah. Awesome.
0: All right, Tommy, thanks so much for sharing. This has been very enlightening. I got to have you back on and talk about uh, everything that we didn't talk about um, or anything else. Cool. I'm not going anywhere. Cool, man. All right. Thanks a lot, Tommy. Thank you. Yeah.